Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Mark Trollis, and welcome to Fertility Health Podcast. Joining me today to discuss third-party reproduction and fresh versus frozen donor eggs is a dear friend, uh, Dr. Mark Leandiris. Uh, today is going to be very exciting, uh, touching on a topic that is uh, somewhat complicated for patients to truly understand uh, and one that is a very important option for patients in need. So uh, I wanted to uh, give you some information about my, my special guest. Uh, Mark is uh, the founder and medical director and partner in reproductive endocrinology at Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut, and also Gay Parents to Be. I'll talk to you about that in just a few minutes. It's really very, very impressive. He's board certified in both OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He did his fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. In terms of the LBGT community, uh, his, his interest and also uh, going through fertility with his partner, uh, he led him to create and launch Gay Parents-to-Be, which is an educational resource supporting gay and lesbian couples and individuals to make family-building choices. Uh, he's well-known nationally, speaks uh, all over the country. I always enjoy listening to Mark at, at medical lectures, but he also has a, a, a great relationship with patients and uh, explains things uh, very, very clear. Uh, the topic today about third-party reproduction is, it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are intended parents that are in, uh, using uh, either just a surrogate or using an egg donor and a surrogate. Uh, and we're going to talk about the two parts of, of, the, of the options of surrogacy as well as donor eggs. So, with that, I want to bring in uh, uh, my guest, Mark Leandiris. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. And we have two Marks on the phone, so it should be uh, obviously a wonderful conversation. Yes, of course. The, the best. Yes, thank you. So, Mark, just just uh, 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 I wanted to give the audience a, a brief explanation. So, traditional surrogacy is where the woman is uh, the surrogate is using her own egg. She will be ovulating and will be inseminated uh, with the intended parent's sperm. Uh, she carries that pregnancy and then, uh, then will uh, provide the uh, intended parent the child after the pregnancy. IVF surrogacy is just that. It involves in vitro fertilization, which is eggs and sperm being fertilized in the laboratory, and then another woman who is the surrogate carries the pregnancy. So the eggs and sperm from, or the eggs from another woman, and then Another woman carries the pregnancy. Mark, in terms of surrogacy, uh, are you seeing um, uh, what are you seeing in terms of traditional surrogacy? It seems like the numbers are really, really low, uh, and not many, many uh, people are, are doing that in the states because of the uh, legality issues, which is going to be actually in another program. We'll talk about the legalities of, of reproductive uh, medicine third party. But what are you seeing in traditional versus IVF surrogacy? Well, we don't uh, even offer or are willing to participate in traditional surrogacy, so I can't comment on that number. I do hear about it here and there, 
Um, you know, as a parent through surrogacy, I would never want to take the risk of not being able to bring my child home. Um, so therefore, I'm unaware of the number and, uh, and, and I can't comment on, uh, on, you know, on recommending it. I think that, uh, um, there's certainly, um, more reliable ways, um, through surrogacy to bring your baby home and assign parentage, um, uh, um, and, and avoiding risks at the same time as far as legal ramifications or even just, you know, complicated relationships. Yeah, it does become more and more difficult with the biologic connection and, and the legalities. So other than single or gay male couples, and a uh, single male or gay male couple, and a woman with, without a uterus, what are, explain to our audience, what are the indications for surrogacy? Well, there's many women... Uh, um, heterosexual couples and uh, even single females who have uh, either chronic illnesses such as lupus or are cancer survivors or have had scarring of the inside of her uterus for different reasons that uh, um, cannot safely either carry a pregnancy um, or achieve conception. So in, in my office, it's about um, 50-50. Um, obviously, there's male couples and single males who need a surrogate. But there's uh, plenty of, uh, of heterosexual couples and single women who uh, also need surrogates. So it's about a 50-50 um, split as far as the utilization of a, a gestational surrogate, a surrogate that's not genetically related to the child. Right, right. And, and other, other uh, things that we, we do see, uh, although not commonly uh, indications, are uh, a, a uterus that is, is terribly scarred called Asherman syndrome. Uh, that really makes it very difficult uh, uh, for for implantation of an embryo, and also at the time of delivery there could be placental problems. Um, we also will sometimes see the patients who have had these procedures, uh, uterine artery embolization, uh, that has caused a significant diminishing blood flow to the to the uterus, and the endometrium, uh, which is the lining, doesn't doesn't build up. Um, and, and I guess you, you also consider maybe unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss, or I, although I don't remember ever doing a, a procedure uh, of surrogacy for that reason. I, I guess if you have a patient that just has continued pregnancy loss, uh, that would be a potential option for them, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? I mean, after everything else is exhausted, essentially. Oh, no, absolutely. There are, there are patients that, uh, I mean, there's only three things that go into our medical equation, right? It's sperm, egg, and uterus. Um, and I kind of, kind of give the egg the 80% um, quotient for the success, and I give the sperm 5% quotient of the success, and uh, the uterus is probably about 15% of the equation. And there are there are women out there with unexplained um, pregnancy losses or failed implantation with normal embryos, um, mm. who then move to a uh, um, a proven uh, uterus, so to speak, a woman who's, who's successfully carried and delivered a baby. And have a much different chance for success. Yeah, so that would be that would be the ideal surrogate. What you were just saying, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but that's for the for the audience. The ideal surrogate is a woman who has carried a pregnancy successfully to term without any medical contraindications uh, to proceeding. So, in fact, one of the prerequisites for a surrogate is to have had a term delivery. In fact, there are criteria to accept a surrogate, including that you know she's had an uncomplicated pregnancy and uh, delivery of, of a child um, at least near term. Um, so that being said, when people select a, 
uh, are looking for a surrogate, those surrogates typically come from a surrogacy agency, and um, they they would start the process of screening, and and the first prerequisite is that that woman's had a baby. Yeah. Um, one other one other indication that I was thinking of for a surrogate, which uh, is always heartbreaking to hear, but there are women out there who've had you know pregnancy losses in the in the late second trimester, and their child uh, um, because of incompetent cervix, and their child did not survive. And in those mm-hmm. cases, perhaps, um, perhaps only once, but sometimes more than once because they kept trying. That's another indication um, for for a surrogate, and uh, yeah. um, and that's another another reason why women come come to the table of, of wanting to use a surrogate. Yeah, and and the last that I can think is is multiple fibroid tumors. You know, those benign tumors of the uterus that can sometimes just wreak havoc. Um, and even asymp- even if they're without symptoms, the the uterus. And the cavity becomes so distorted that uh, that uh, implantation uh, extremely difficult, and you can't even sometimes get to the ovaries for an egg retrieval. So, multiple fibroid uterus uh, that that would essentially preclude uh, pregnancy or, or dramatically reduce the chances of success affecting the, the lining of the uterus. So let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, egg donation, or a lot about really egg donation. I, Starting in the 1980s is when, mid-80s is, I believe, when we first had the success uh, and, and egg donors uh, were synchronized with, with the intended parent. Uh, the intended parent was on hormones to, uh, to prepare the uterus to receive the embryo and the egg donor at, at simultaneously was being stimulated and was synchronizing uh, those, those two cycles to, to match exactly when the embryo was being transferred. and, and uh, so that was rather precarious in the, in the early days of, of, of doing that, but now it's it's much easier, and particularly with the use of frozen eggs, uh, all the work has been done. So it's really a thaw and a transfer. So so take us through a little bit, Mark, uh, of the difference between uh, using a fresh versus frozen in terms of just logistics, but also ultimately success rates. So uh, in regards to fresh versus frozen eggs, I think it's important for people to understand um, an egg is a one-cell structure. Um, So if there's any harm to the egg in the the cryopreservation or the warming process, that egg is is not functional. And uh, it's been a hurdle over the 40 years of reproductive medicine to be able to freeze eggs. In 2013, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine Kind of removed the experimental label off of, uh, you know, egg freezing and warming for reproduction, and this came into kind of current practice. Uh, that being said, you know, if you're if you're matched with a fresh egg donor, you typically get um, you either are you either get all the eggs from that egg donation cycle, or some programs split the pool of eggs. And typically, from a young donor, you're getting somewhere between you know. Um, 15 to, to uh, 25 eggs. Um, so the, 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 the opportunity to have embryos for transfer and cryopreservation are higher, but the concomitant costs are higher. If you're working with frozen eggs, typically you're buying a batch or a lot of frozen eggs, somewhere between six to eight frozen eggs. And uh, um, those eggs have been um, cryopreserved by an expert in, in egg cryopreservation. In fact, not every embryologist um, is uh, signed off on egg cryopreservation, and even and the person warming 
the eggs, um, is also usually a specialist within the IVF laboratory. Uh, and typically, survival of thaw from a lot of six to eight eggs is somewhere around, you know, 80%. And once the egg has survived, the, um, it, it is going to be fertilized, um, typically by ICSI, where we inject one sperm into one egg because we're worried about uh, problems with natural fertilization because the eggs have, 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 have been cleaned of their what we call cumulus cells. So the <laughs> distinction between a, a fresh egg pool is in a fresh egg pool you have more eggs available often to the recipient. Um, those eggs don't aren't at risk for cryopreservation or warming um, damage, and there's there's also the opportunity in that situation for what we call, call conventional insemination, where you simply put sperm around the egg um, and versus in a cryopreserved egg population, you get less eggs. It's important to, to say that every fertility practice is on the same side of the table as the patient. We want you to get pregnant as much as you want to get pregnant, we'd like to say. Obviously, right. you've been the person who's been suffering with uh, subfertility or infertility. The only other side of the table is cost for many people. So the one of the significant benefits of attempting with a, a frozen egg pool is it's significantly less expensive um, because you're able to share the cost of a 15 to 25 um, egg cycle with the other people who are going to use eggs from this one donation. With a fresh egg donation cycle. Uh, so that re reduces the cost. And, but if you're having a one donor fresh cycle versus a frozen egg donor, frozen eggs should be less expensive, wouldn't you say? Yeah, frozen eggs would, would absolutely be less expensive yeah. because you're, yeah. you're, the, the, the program that froze the eggs um, has, uh, um, is able to share that cost amongst met multiple recipients. Right, right. So what are you saying is the, uh, or what are you quoting now uh, as patients saying, well, what's the difference for sex rates with fresh versus frozen? Um, you know, we have to be careful when we talk about success rates because it can be confusing for patients. But once you get to transfer, assuming you get a, an embryo, a, a high-grade blastocyst or a transfer, it's somewhere around a 10 percentage point difference for live birth rates. So 55% versus 45% um, is a number that, that people talk about, or 60% or for, for fresh egg transfer um, versus uh, um, about 50% for frozen egg transfers. What's your opinion on those numbers, Mark? Yeah, I, it's, it's remarkable that you, you, you gave the exact same numbers that I give my patients. Uh, we follow the same literature. 10% uh, difference. Um, probably in the 60s versus in the 50s. Um, as much as you read in, in those those studies where there's no difference at all, it, it, you know, I, I just, like you, speak to people across the country and, and they're just not seeing the absolute uh, um, uh, equivalence of fresh versus frozen. But there are advantages uh, of using frozen. Um, you're not going to have the plethora of, of uh, extra uh, embryos uh, and, and the dilemma of what to do with all those extra embryos if you have just one donor um, rather than sharing. Um, and uh, you have the convenience of not having to go through a cycle with the potential logistic challenges of a fresh egg donor um, and the stringent synchronization and, uh, uh, with a frozen. You really can 
time almost everything uh, down to the, uh, the day that you want to do your embryo transfer, essentially, as long as the uterus responds well for the intended parent. So uh, more and more, even when I give those, those differences of the success rate, um, cost is less with frozen, um, and, the, and the convenience is, is higher, we're seeing a lot of our patients now using frozen. And the only time we're seeing fresh, really, is if it's a family member. Um, sister, uh, cousin, niece, if you will. Um, so it, it's really um, uh, a remarkable shift in the, in the uh, um, pendulum that toward, toward going to frozen. I think one thing to consider, though, if you're going to use a frozen egg band batch, there, there, the positives is are many of the egg banks are offering guarantee programs, which is great for blastocysts, and some of them offer live birth guarantees. One of the downsides would be for the couple, gay male or heterosexual, that wants to have more than one child from this batch, perhaps two, perhaps three. Because you're dealing with a smaller starting pool, um, you're much lower likely to have cryopreserved embryos for future use. And uh, um, so I think that the, the patient populations in our practice that you're using the egg bank tend to be, you know, um, heterosexual women who have a, they want one child um, between her and her partner, and the, the, the families-to-be that are using um, a fresh donor at this point are people, are gay male couples who want to have, you know, two or three children, or heterosexual couples, perhaps born without a uterus, perhaps have no opportunity to start a family, and they also want to have two or three children, because having the availability for multiple cryopreserved embryos leaves you depth on the bench, so to speak, yeah. have more over in two or three years in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, I typically will quote patients to say, that you, you know, when you do a frozen egg cycle of getting six to eight eggs, you're looking at on day five where there are blastocysts anywhere from one to maybe three. Um, but with, fro with fresh, if it's all you from that fresh uh, egg donor, you could get five, seven or more extra embryos. So uh, the... the the, the purpose of having biologically related children with, with future uh, embryo transfers becomes a little bit more um, difficult when you use frozen eggs. So speaking of wanting more children, I know this is near and dear to your heart, and we've talked a lot um, uh, about the subject. We're seeing clearly increasing numbers of intended parents wanting double embryo transfer with egg donation. And for their listeners, double means that you're transferring two embryos. Now, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, particularly with an egg donor being so young, strongly, strongly recommends a single embryo. But when you go through the process of surrogacy, when you look at the costs that are involved for, the, for these uh, intended parents, um, it is certainly less costly in the long run to try to transfer two embryos um, for the cycles. But then you deal with the risks of, of multiple births, and sometimes that could be more costly if there's complications. So, Mark, comment a little bit, uh, and I know your feelings on this, but I wanted you to share because you, you, you speak so eloquently about the topic, uh, particularly for the LGBTQ population who are going through this. Um, what is your take on the patient who comes to say, I want two embryos? And as a matter of fact, just I'm sorry to, to belabor this, but I saw a, um, a gay male couple today from, uh, from Europe, and they are going to share the insemination. They're purchasing eight frozen eggs and four from one uh, of the partners and four from the other, and they want to transfer two embryos 
uh, from one of each. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about your experiences and, and your take on that. Well, you know, as a practice, we'll do about 100 um, same-sex male couples uh, this year. And uh, the vast majority of those couples want to create embryos from each partner. And um, the many of them walk through the door with the desire to transfer two embryos. And the way it settled out in our practice, uh, in spite of counseling about the risk for twins, about tw- 25% of them still transfer two embryos. And I feel like, for uh, especially as somebody without access to a uterus, heterosexual or gay who has to spend somewhere between a hundred to two hundred thousand US dollars to have a baby. Um, they're allowed to have some patient autonomy wishes in this. So if ninety percent of twins are healthy and well, um, and they might only have this single chance to afford a surrogacy journey, then we have to allow them to make their own best decision. Um, while it is clearly known that a twin pregnancy um, is a higher risk pregnancy. It is also known that when you transfer two embryos, you have a higher chance for pregnancy. It's, it's also known that only about 50% of double embryo transfers result in a twin pregnancy. So if you do the math on a double embryo transfer, um, it's the people who get pregnant with twins who have, you know, the increased risk to their unborn child. But if the decision is this is their only opportunity to potentially have two children, this, uh, um, I think we need to let them make that decision for their own family. There are also no guarantees if you transfer a single embryo, you're not going to have a child with, you know, a, a birth defect or, or autism development to the way. Sure, sure. So, and, but I don't think that... States, sorry. In the United States, we believe in patient autonomy, and we believe in informed consent. So right. I counsel every single one of my patients towards only transferring one, yeah. and if they choose to do two, I support them. The other, uh, co- the other patient population is not just LGBTQ, it's, it's the uh, even heterosexual couples for the duration of their infertility. When they have been trying for years and years and going through multiple unsuccessful cycles, it's hard for them to, uh, particularly the, uh, the older reproductive age woman, hard for them to accept transferring one when they have been going through years with transferring multiple embryos and not successful, interestingly. And it sort of also segues to the point that the older reproductive age woman you know, you're seeing a lot of celebrities, and I didn't want to miss this, there's a lot of celebrities uh, in their later 40s uh, and beyond who are, who are getting pregnant, uh, presumably, of course, through aid donation, and uh, their fans uh, and the public are not um, be, uh, having that disclosed to them, so it gives them a false sense of, of fertility empowerment if they're, uh, if they're not being told that they're going through aid donation. So uh, just for the listener, um, women uh, go through ovarian aging, uh, all women go through that, and it becomes very difficult uh, as a woman gets throughout their, uh, after their really late 30s, you're, you're having a much more difficult time through in vitro fertilization, and certainly above 42, you're, you're, you're dealing with a significant challenge. So, Mark, we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately. Uh, you, you were a wealth of information, as I expected. I know our listeners uh, were, were um, uh, in, in for a tremendous uh, treat uh, hearing all of your uh, comments and experience. So I want to thank our listeners uh, uh, for joining us at the Fertility Health Podcast. Uh, we had Dr. Mark Leon uh from uh, Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut. Uh, 
Uh, and if you are in that area uh, listening, uh, please go see him for your fertility needs because he is a, a fabulous physician. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.